Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. In our last episode, we concluded our review of witness testimony in the case. On today's episode, we move on to look at Judge Bruce Schrader's instructions to the jury and begin our examination of the prosecution's closing argument. That's all coming up right after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On Monday, November 15th, 2021, Judge Bruce Schrader read his instructions to the jury in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Before he did so, he heard arguments on the defense motion to dismiss the charge against Rittenhouse that he was a minor in possession of a dangerous weapon. During the hearing, defense attorneys Mark Richards and Corey Sharafasi argued that there was an exception to that law allowing minors to possess shotguns and rifles as long as the barrel length of the firearm is over 60. Inches. Prosecutor James Krause argued that dismissing the charge would render meaningless the law prohibiting underage possession of dangerous weapons. But the law seems to have been intended to carve out an exception for minors to be able to possess hunting rifles and shotguns, and did so by defining a permitted gun by barrel length. When Prosecutor Krauss acknowledged that the defendant's AR-15 had a barrel length longer than 16 inches, Judge Bruce Schrader threw out the gun charge as he had previously thrown out the curfew violation charge, leaving five counts charged against Rittenhouse. Here is a brief excerpt from Judge Schrader's instructions to the jury, which by all accounts did not deviate much from standard charging statements in Wisconsin. You must base your verdict on the law as I give it to you in these instructions. Apply that law to the facts in the case which have been properly proved by the evidence. Consider only the evidence received during the trial and the law as given to you in these instructions. And from these things alone, guided by your soundest reason and best judgment, reach your verdict. If any of you has any impression of my opinion as to the innocence or guilt of the defendant, you must disregard that impression entirely and decide this case solely as you view the evidence. You are the sole judges of the facts, and I am the judge of the law only. Keep in mind that the information is nothing more than a written formal accusation against the defendant accusing him of the commission of crimes. You are not to consider it as evidence against the defendant in any way, and it does not raise any inference of guilt. The information contains six counts of charged unlawful behavior against the defendant, and to each of these he has entered a plea of not guilty which is a demand that the state prove every element of each crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Self-defense is an issue in this case, as to each of counts one through five, and I might interject here, uh, count six is no longer part of your consideration. That was the firearm charge. So that will not be something that you will need to address. You'll need to address 
You'll need to address only the first five counts. Prosecutor Thomas Binger then begins his closing argument. A card on the court TV screen reads, Common Ground. I think it's no surprise that this is a case that there's a lot of uh, noise and a lot of uh, static surrounding it. So what I'd like to do at the beginning is crystallize it in a nutshell for you and keep it as simple as possible. This is a case in which a 17-year-old teenager killed two unarmed men and severely wounded a third person with an AR-15 that did not belong to him. This isn't a situation where he was protecting his home or his family. He killed people after traveling here from Antioch, Illinois and staying out after a citywide curfew. Your Honor, I'm objective. There's no curfew charge anymore. There's no gun charge. But there had been a curfew announced. That does not mean that it was technically a legal curfew. But there had been an announced curfew, so I'll leave it at that. And it was a curfew that all the rest of us here in Kenosha were aware of. And I think most people, most reasonable people, obeyed. Although the defendant claimed to be protecting a business that he wasn't familiar with, the actual killings in this case had nothing to do with that. And he also spent the entire evening lying about the fact that he was an EMT. None of the things that I just told you are in doubt in this case. So when we think about the defendant, I'd like you to consider as you think about this case what were his true motivations were. Was this a situation where he sincerely cared about car source, even though he'd never heard of it, never bought anything there, never worked there, and not even its owners were out there that night protecting it? Was he genuinely interested in helping people? He ran around with an AR-15 all night and lied about being an EMT. Does that suggest to you that he genuinely is there to help? He's not there for the same purpose as the protesters. So why was he there that night? When you think about these things, I think there are some things that we can all agree on. In America, it's hard these days. People are polarized and there's a lot of political issues back and forth. And the judges made it clear this case is not about politics. There is common ground here. We have all agreed, and I asked you this two weeks ago today, raise your hand if you agree life is more important than property. And all of you raised your hand. We also agree that no one person's life is more valuable than another. You don't get to kill someone simply because they're a drug dealer. You don't weigh a, a pastor's life over a teacher's life. You don't weigh a police officer's life over an engineer's life. All life is sacred. I think we can also agree that we shouldn't have 17-year-olds running around our streets with AR-15s because this is exactly what happens. And finally, I want you to keep in mind that we've all read stories and heard about heroes that step in to stop an active shooter or to give their life to save others. In fact, many people in Wisconsin went out and got carrying concealed weapon permits just so that they could be there in case there was an active shooter and wanting to stop them. The card on the court's TV monitor now reads, look for the truth. So when you consider this case, look for the truth. So many people look at this case and they see what they want to see. They have a preconceived notion and they tailor the facts to fit whatever they believe. And you all agreed to keep an open mind. You all told us you didn't have any of those preconceived notions. Now you've heard the evidence and it's time to search for the truth. So consider, for example, 
whether or not it's heroic or honorable to provoke and shoot unarmed people. Consider whether it makes someone a hero when they lie about being an EMT. I think all of us are familiar with someone who does the sorts of things that the defendant has done. They enjoy the thrill of going around and telling people what to do without the courage or the honor to back it up and without the legal authority to do so. And when you think about the defendant's behavior in this case, contrast it with Anthony Huber, a man who was there because he knew Jacob Blake, who carried his skateboard everywhere and who rushed towards danger to save other people's lives. So when I talk to you here in my closing argument, I'm going to focus first on the murders that the defendant committed. Second, I'm going to address some background issues, give you some context, and talk about some of the things that I don't think are relevant to this case. And finally, I'm going to tie it all into the jury instructions that the judge just gave you. As prosecutors in this case, my colleague Jim Krause and I have tried to present you with all of the relevant evidence that we think you should consider in this case. And I told one of you in jury selection that at the end of this, you would be the expert. You would have all the information. You would be the one who would know all about this case and make that decision. And that's what we've tried to do. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Prosecutor Binger continues his closing by focusing the jurors' attention on the night of the shootings. So let's go to August 25th, 2020. The defendant came from outside our community, carrying a gun that wasn't his, because he expected and anticipated violence that night. And he pretended to guard what turned out to be an empty building owned by people he'd never even met, while fraudulently claiming all night long to be an EMT. There were a lot of people out that night. Some people stayed home protecting their homes and their families. Others went to their businesses, boarded them up, and protected them. And a lot of those people had weapons. A lot of them had guns. There were other people who came along to protect car source or ultimate gas or other businesses. And many of them were armed with AR-15s, just like the defendant. In fact, you're going to see a video, and you've already seen it, of a clash between people with AR-15s at ultimate gas and other folks that are, I guess, protesters. And there's people getting in people's faces. There's yelling, there's shouting, there's even shoving. And yet, in this entire sequence of events, from the shooting of Jacob Blake on Sunday, August 23rd, 2020, all the way after that, everything this community went through, the only person who shot and killed anyone was the defendant. Yes, there was property damage. No one's here to defend that. No one's here to tell you it's okay to commit arson or looting. No one's here to tell you it's okay to be rioters. I'm not defending any of that. You know because you've been told in the testimony, I'm prosecuting Joseph Zeminski for arson. 
That's not okay. But what you don't get to do is kill someone on the street for committing arson. So let's keep that in mind when we're talking about the people involved in this case. Binger moves on to his argument on the charges related to the killing of Joseph Rosenbaum. So let's begin with the provocation and the murder of Joseph Rosenbaum, because it's all captured on video. As the defendant and Mr. Rosenbaum arrive at the 63rd Street car source, Mr. Rosenbaum is ahead of the defendant. And as you see in the FBI video, when Mr. Rosenbaum starts to run, the defendant starts to run as well, at the same time, as if he's pursuing him. Mr. Rosenbaum could not have possibly have known the defendant is behind him. There's no indication in this record that he knew the defendant was there. It's not an ambush. It's not a situation where he goes there and lays in wait for the defendant. The defendant arrives at that location, and you hear him yell, friendly, 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 because he's aware of the fact that the people that he's about to confront are hostile to him. And I'm going to show you in a moment the video in which the first thing he does when he arrives at that location is drops the fire extinguisher that he's holding in his left hand so he can raise the gun with his right and left hands and point it. This is when you hear someone, I think the testimony is Rosenbaum, it's not clear to me, but either way, yell, gun, gun, gun. And then Mr. Rosenbaum charges around to try and stop the defendant from pointing his gun or shooting anyone. So let's take a look at some of that video. Prosecutor Binger then proceeds to play the full drone video. The video has no audio and Binger narrates the action on screen as the footage plays. When the defendant originally arrives at that scene, the first thing you see him do is drop the fire extinguisher and point his weapon at people. And then the chase occurs right after that. The defendant turns as he's being pursued and points the gun at Mr. Rosenbaum. And then as he enters the area between the parked cars, he slows and turns. And before Mr. Rosenbaum can even come close, he fires at him, shooting and knocking him to the ground. Binger then plays the slowed down and zoomed in version of the video. I'm going to replay it a few times so you can see quite clearly that the defendant sets the fire extinguisher on the ground with his left hand and then brings his left hand over to the gun and raises it and points. Under Wisconsin law, you're not allowed to run around and point your gun at people. This is the provocation. This is what starts this incident. The defendant rushes in and immediately points the gun. And as you'll see in a little bit, Mr. Rosenbaum doesn't take kindly to people pointing guns. I don't think anyone does. That's not unusual. No one wants to have the gun pointed at them, and no one wants to watch anyone else do this to someone else. Binger next picks up a water bottle to symbolize the fire extinguisher and Rittenhouse's unloaded gun, which stands in evidence, and reenacts his movements. The defendant comes running in and drops the fire extinguisher on the ground like this. And then raises his left hand to the gun and points. This is what we see in the video. Him putting the fire extinguisher on the ground and then raising the gun. Your Honor, I'm going to check he's facing the wrong direction. That's an argument. Okay. Judge Schrader overrules the objection. So what you see in that video is his left arm reaching for the gun, holding it up. That is what provokes this entire incident. And one of the things to keep in mind is that 
when the defendant provokes the incident, he loses the right to self-defense. You cannot claim self-defense against a danger you create. That's critical right here. If you're the one who is threatening others, you lose the right to claim self-defense. The prosecutor then moves on to Rosenbaum's chase of Rittenhouse into the car source lot. Then we have the chase that occurs after that. And we have taken that drone video and we have slowed down portions of that chase for you. So what we have right here on the screen, this is exhibit 84, and this is the middle portion of that incident. And you can see Mr. Rosenbaum chasing after the defendant, throwing that plastic bag, and then the defendant turns and points the gun back at Mr. Rosenbaum. And this is the moment in time when Mr. Rosenbaum essentially does sort of a little hop with both of his hands in the air. And the defendant has testified. He saw at that moment that there was nothing in the defendant's hand, or in Mr. Rosenbaum's hands. He was unarmed. There's the defendant turning and pointing the gun. Mr. Rosenbaum leaps, his hands out to the air, and then watch here at the end. This is where the shooting occurs. Mr. Rosenbaum is not even within arm's reach when the first shot occurs. Binger replays the slowed down video once more for the jury in an apparent effort to imprint his narrative for the images on their memories. Finally, I'm gonna play you exhibit 86. This shows you the final part of that, zoomed in and slowed down. Here's the defendant running in between those parked cars, slowing down, and you can see just how close, or rather how far away, Mr. Rosenbaum was when the defendant shot him. You can see from this video that Mr. Rosenbaum is not even within arm's reach of the defendant when the first shot goes off. The defendant fires four shots in quick succession. And I'll come back to this in a moment, but you'll note during this entire sequence, it's the defendant who chooses where to go. He's the one who decides to run where he runs. And he slows down right as he gets to these parked cars. That's what allows Rosenbaum to get closer. Prosecutor Binger next presents to the jury the aerial FBI footage of the Rosenbaum shooting. This is the annotated aerial footage. You see the defendant approach running in the same direction as Mr. Rosenbaum. This is where the pointing occurs in the direction of the Zeminskis. You can see Joshua Zeminskis right there on the screen. I'm going to put the cursor over where, where the Zeminskis are. They're right in there. The defendant is pointing his gun right here, and he's pointing it in the direction of the Zeminskis because they're standing next to that car, and then the chase occurs. Now, what's interesting to me is watch when the crowd starts to run. The crowd's already starting to run here even before the defendant has fired a shot. That's likely because they heard the first shot from Joshua Zeminski, and the crowd starts to run away. The defendant has testified that that shot from Mr. Zeminski had nothing to do with his decision to kill Joseph Rosenbaum. And I'll come back to that in a second. Finally, I'm going to show you this incident from the perspective of Drew Hernandez, because he is behind all of this, and then he comes upon Mr. Rosenbaum's body. Again, Binger narrates over the Drew Hernandez video. At this point, the defendant has shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum, and Mr. Rosenbaum is laying face down. That's where he falls. Richie McGinnis actually rolls him over after trying to stem the bleeding here. You can see in the foreground that plastic bag that Mr. Rosenbaum threw on the ground. 
I don't think there's any dispute. There was nothing harmful in that bag. It was a clear bag containing some uh, uh, some clear items. Objection. There is a dispute what's in that bag. Then you can make that dispute in your argument. It's argument, and uh, you'll be allowed to respond. You can see in this video the crowd is attempting to save Mr. Rosenbaum's life. In the now familiar video, there are individuals who have joined journalist Richie McGinnis intending to Joseph Rosenbaum. The camera finds Rosenbaum lying on his back. His chest is bare. There is cloth around the top of his head and around his face. His eyes are open and he appears to be convulsing. As the camera pushes into his head, a male voice says, get a light on it. A female voice says, put pressure on it, put pressure, put fucking pressure on it. A male voice shouts, where, where's the hole? The female voice yells, it's right here on his head, on his head. And then we see a tear in the cloth on Rosenbaum's head and a gash on the side of his skull. Unidentified hands apply a black shirt, presumably Richie McGuinness's, to the head wound. The female voice yells, put pressure, put pressure, put pressure. A voice says to Rosenbaum, keep your eyes open. We now see blood around Rosenbaum's nostrils. The female voice says, you shot him. And a male voice says, I didn't. As the clip ends, we hear a male voice say, just talk to me, bro. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us on our next installment as we continue our observation of the prosecution's closing arguments. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik, and it was edited by Chris Taracone. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.